The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant. 20 past eight, you are with SFM 104 to 107. Brilliant to have uh, those youngsters doing such interesting stuff and really helping us engage in ways that we may not have engaged in society before. Now, over a year ago, and it might even have been longer, I ended up, I started to chat to Chris Vick, who is the chairperson of the COVID Comms SA project. And through time, they have been working very closely and volunteering and achieving uh, a, a process of trying to communicate um, COVID-19, understanding that it required a very different way of communication. Did it work? Are we, were we able to do it? Well, there's lots of questions around that. And how do we grapple continuously with uh, communicating the COVID issue, even as it moves from pandemic to endemic? And the numbers are still up. We've seen that. So on the line, we have Chris Vick, chairperson of COVID Comms SA. Chris, thanks a lot for joining us. Morning, Michelle. Thanks for the opportunity. Geez, Chris, so the last time I spoke to you, you guys were just jumping into this idea, thinking about how we communicate, what we communicate. And I suppose the question is, how do you feel right now, two years down the line? I think it's a mixed bag, Michelle. You know, mm. we had a workshop this week with um, colleagues in government, labor, business, and civil society. And I think there's there's recognition of of one thing, if nothing else, and that is that the pandemic created a very unique social compact in which government, labor, business, and civil society work together to coordinate messaging, to coordinate rollout, um, and to make maximum impact. The, the downside, of course, is it took a long time to get that social compact into place and to work. So effectively, COVID-Cons has been around as long as lockdown, which is two mm. years, but it took more than a year to get that national partnership in place. So during those first uh, crucial months, you had two things. One was an inconsistency and a lack of coordination in messaging, uh, compounded by the use of English and science. And the other is that government was really uh, self-disabled by the digital vibe scandal, which which not only resulted in money being stolen, but resulted in no communication taking place. Yeah. So, so that's why I say it's a mixed bag. You know, the first year really bleak. The second year productive, helpful, and and we can feel that it's starting to make a difference. So, I suppose one would say, well, uh, how do we measure the difference? And if I had to say, well, I'm going to measure the vaccinations, I would might be feeling a little less enthusiastic. But I may be wrong in saying that. Talk to us about why you say we feel that it's making a difference. Well, if you, we, it's mainly through listening, right? I mean, the, the major challenge, listening and measurement, the, mm. the fact that people are getting vaccinated, I think, is an indication that that the messaging is work working. Yeah. The other is that there are fairly elaborate social listening mechanisms in place, Brilliant. which involve academics, uh, NGOs, government, etc. And, and and that's a weekly project that's tracking what people are saying yes. about COVID, uh, what they're saying about the vaccinations, and what they're saying is uh, are reasons why they're not getting vaccinated. So there's a sense, although the figures are nowhere near where they need to be, it is on average around 50,000 people a week who are getting vaccinated. Wow, okay. And, and you can see in the, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that Omicron 
is less of a threat than any of the other variants. But I think there's a resistance within society and immunity, um, which is partly to do with the vaccine. If you're vaccinated, Omicron has much less of an impact on you. It's much less damaging. And you can see that in the figures around... Um, I'm sorry, my dog is going mad. Um, you can you can sort of see the health response that indicates vaccination has been taken up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, I think the the other you know there's a very important point that Kusati made at the at the workshop we had this week, which is that all of us um, made a huge amount of assumptions when COVID. Uh, arrived and as the yeah. pandemic started to spread. And one of those assumptions was that people would proactively think about their health and the health of people around them and would proactively go out and get vaccinated. Yeah. And I think that assumption is is is, 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 is is a fundamental reason why it's taken so long to get the take up we've got, is that we didn't think, we didn't expect that there would be hesitance or that there would be um, resistance, you yeah. know, and, yeah. and that's made it particularly difficult because you would think logically anything that stops you from getting really ill or stops you from dying or stops you from spreading uh, something as, as, as dangerous as COVID, that people would automatically step up. And what we realized was that's not the case. There's not a the whole case, lot of no. other issues taking place as well. Yeah. You know, you mentioned so many different things that I like want to just jump into. One of them is you talk about um, how we kind of look at the measurements, not only with regards to vaccination, but also with social media. And you, they, it feels, and I stand to be corrected on this, but it may just be my timeline, that there is a shift in the engagement. I'm seeing people who were highly anti-vax actually being... Um, uh, taken off Twitter, which I thought was interesting. And then the second thing you've noted, and, and, and this is probably critical to this process, is how we communicate, and which is so much about the work that, that your team did, was A, the issue of language, but e, B, the, and, and this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, is what is the language we use? And I don't mean whether it's Isuzulu um, or English or whatever. I mean there is a language of science and there's a language of me, which is just like, I don't understand this and I need it in as simple terms as possible. And how do we translate that as well? I, I mean, those are, those, are, those are two fundamental issues. The first one, I think that the, in the same way that all of us are caught mapping with the pandemic, um, the social media companies, the people who were collaborative, if you could call it that, in spreading this information, have gradually taken a more responsible position. And I think people, consumers, have started to be more proactive in reporting yeah. and calling out the anti-vax people, which has helped. But, you know, Prof. Mushabella from University of KZN made an interesting point. Um, and this is based on the same kind of hindsight that, that we've developed over two years, which is that we possibly weren't as engaging enough with people who are anti-vax as we should have been. We sort of demonized them rather than trying to win them over. And maybe that, with hindsight, would have been a more constructive approach. Um, because his sense, and I mean, he does have a lot more contact than most academics um, with, with people in KZN who are COVID-resistant. His mm. sense was that in some cases, people are opposed to the vaccine because they're opposed to the state and how the state is treating them. So if I'm a young, unemployed yes. woman and I'm angry with government because it's not uh, sorting out my social grants, it's not helping me get a job, etc. My protest 
is to is to essentially boycott the the public health system and not get vaccinated, which which I find to be quite an interesting observation because it means it's not just about the needle, right? It's about how you perceive the people who are calling on you to get the vaccination, yeah. and calling you to act in a responsible way. Your your second point about language. I mean, I was I was working on something this morning. Um, a piece of work we're doing on reproductive rights because there's all this nonsense about um, how you can become impotent if you get vaccinated, yes. etc. And and the truth is, and I mean, I did a sort of global scan. There's very very little information that that helps you understand this. What, what's what there's a lot of is English science and, and, <laughs> and, and the approach, which is cool if you know Latin and you know that kind of stuff, but. The approach we took was was to really sort of dissect, firstly dissect the science and apply it to, from a people's perspective rather than from a scientific perspective without losing its integrity. The other was obviously the question of translation. And it took up a huge amount of time, but we now have a bank of translators who can work in all 12 languages. We produce material in Quekwe, for example, for community radio stations in the Northern Cape. But Michelle, as with everything there too, is a challenge, right? I'd like us to get to the point where we're not writing in English and translating, but we're writing in Setswana, etc. Because I think there's a different idiom, there's a different mm. dynamic, there's a different way of telling the story. But it is incredibly difficult to get um, skilled, plain language translators. There are a lot of people who work in academic institutions or who are journalists like at the SABC, but that's a different kind of storytelling and, and plain language to what, you know, to what is really needed in the pandemic. Chris, it's it's so interesting because I do recall years ago when I was working on the Takalani Sesame radio programs and they were reversioned into all sorts of, into all different languages. And the question that was asked right up front is, does translation work? And of course it doesn't work because if I am... Um, in the Northern Cape versus in Gauteng, my approach to the world is completely, completely different. Um, or in Johannesburg versus whatever. Um, and th- th- there was a big question mark around why, why not to translate, but to rethink, um, as you say, reversion or not even reversion, but start from point A within any language. Uh, I mean, I love the idea that you're doing it in so many diverse languages. I think that's absolutely brilliant. I must say, I'm even worried is that I don't even understand um, in English some of the stuff that gets told to me. Um, it's like when you're talking about a virus. The best thing that I ever understood was, um, um, what was his the fantastic author who wrote that book, The Body? And he said, a virus is actually a zombie. It's dead until it's alive. And that for the first time, mm. I actually started to understand what the hell a virus was. And <laughs> I mean... We need we need that kind of thinking as well. No, I agree with you, and I think part of the challenge with, with social media is it makes everyone think they're an expert. <laughs> right? we're an expert. We now all understand Ukraine and Russia relations. Oh, uh, we, yeah. we understood we stood after the stories when he was on trial. So, so that phenomenon is is, is, is particularly challenging. Yeah. But I mean, the way we try and do it is we work. We have a kind of reference group, changing reference groups, but sometimes it's medical practitioners, sometimes it's people who are doing the research, sometimes it's people who've been public health communicators. I mean, it's a very rich experience out of the HIV AIDS campaign, for example. So we're constantly kind of testing ideas there. I think in an ideal world, it would be fantastic to have 
a, a think tank, plain language think tank working in every single language that produces this yes. material. We don't have the resources for that. But I mean, I think that's when you would start to see a shift in behavioral change. I mean, the, the question you raise about language, when we post sometimes, when we post in Susutu, we get people from Pretoria um, saying, this is not Susutu, you've done a Google Translate. Yeah. Whereas people in Lesotho say, this is fantastic, you're using the, the proper language. <laughs> there's, there's, that, there's the dialect dynamic. Yeah. But, but what, we, what we did, and I mean, it was a massive project, was we produced a glossary of all the medical and scientific terms we could find associated with, with COVID-19. And we translated that into all, we didn't do quickly, into all 11 languages. Right? So at least there's now a consistent uh, resource that has these medical terms translated into plain language in, in 11 South African languages. So, it, you know, that, that sort of made the body of work easier. The next stage, obviously, was to get people generating content in their own language, in their own idiom. And then, sorry to take it one step further, we're starting to look at a more segmented approach in terms of class, race, gender, geography. (laughs) Yeah, everything. And I mean, that's increasingly the way the thinking's going around COVID campaigns in the future is, is away from the mass campaign notion into a much more segmented approach. Uh, much more dynamic. We're doing a lot. We're doing community workshops now, where we have a vaccine toolkit in six languages, which is used as a basis to train youth community leaders in how to convince other people to get vaccinated. So we're combining there our common skills with contact with communities, and we then take the outcomes of those workshops and we create little videos that we put on social media. So increasingly, as the as we, as we all understand the pandemic better and we all understand our population better, the way we communicate is changing to reflect that. Perhaps the elephant in the room in closing, Chris, is that, and, and you talk about increasingly and in the future, some people may uh, be making the assumption that this is the end of COVID. But we know for sure that, that that's not the case, eh? We, we, we do talk about it may be becoming endemic, but we also talk about the new variants that are coming up. And furthermore, I, I think that the learnings that we take from this are going to be more and more and more critical and useful in the future because this is not going to be the last one for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as, as the team that was at this workshop this week, which is all for social partners, are very focused on being in place and communicating until the pandemic is no longer a pandemic. Now, that might be June. There might be a fifth wave. There might be another variant. But it's still, it's a bit like the Solidarity Fund. It's all hands on deck until we know that there's no need for it to be to be present. But increasingly, the discussion with COVID comes is how do we take the skills that we've developed? How do we take the network that we've built up? And how do we deal with things like TB? How do we deal with climate change? How do we deal with violence against women? Because I think what the pandemic has done is brought out the best in us. It's mm. taught us how to deal in a crisis. But again, we can't just demobilize during peacetime. We need to pick up the other battles, the other wars, the other struggles that affect our society and collaborate. I think the collaboration thing is critical to bring about joint solutions that result in behavioral change. Yeah. Chris, fascinating conversation, and I'm certain uh, that the workshop must have been really, really interesting as well. We look forward to seeing how this moves forward in the future and how we uh, rethink it in the future as well. So thanks for making the time on a Sunday morning.
Thanks for your interest, Michelle. My apologies for the, my daughter's very much. No, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> wonderful to have the soundtrack in the background. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Thank you. That's Chris Vick. He's the chairperson of COVIDcons.sa. And between their volunteers, they've had some excellent, excellent achievements. And as you say, also have to deal with some of the challenges as we move forward as well. It's